Well, good evening, church. Thank you for coming. Tonight, we're going to be continuing through the Baptist Catechism. So, if you have your white catechisms with you, turn to page five, and we're going to be addressing question three. Now, as we read this together, uh, you're actually going to notice that there are um, some of the things that we're going to address in this answer is very similar to what we saw uh, last month with the second question. There's a little bit of overlap, and we should be thinking about our question tonight in relation to our question from last month. Uh, I, wanted to, I wish I could have combined question two and question three, but I would not have had nearly enough time to do it. Um, so kind of think about this as we are expanding a little bit on question two with question three. Um, our answers in question three are going to be uh, a little bit different. They're going to point us to a different perspective um, while generally looking at the same topic, namely soteriology and salvation. You also notice that our answer is actually going to be broken into two parts, parts A and B, and we're going to break those down and examine them. So if you would, please read with me. The Baptist Catechism, question three. How may we know that there is a God? The light of nature and man and the works of God plainly declare that there is a God, but his word and his spirit only do it fully and effectually for the salvation of sinners. Well, let's go ahead and pray, and we will jump into this. Dear Father, uh, we come to you now, and we ask that you would just bless this time of worship. Um, I ask that you would remind us of truths that have, been, that have maybe become dull or forgotten, um, that you would help us to learn that I would be able to teach clearly, and that you would help the listener to understand. Uh, I pray that this would be edifying to your church and that you would be glorified in the teaching and our worship. And we ask all these things through Christ. Amen. <clears throat> now, as I mentioned earlier, uh, I believe that our third question is actually expanding on question two a little bit. It's going to offer us a different perspective on the same general topic. And as we examine both parts of our answer, we're going to see a little bit of overlap, mainly here in part A. How may we know that there is a God? The light of nature and man and the works of God plainly declare that there is a God. And here we have a succinct declaration that we know that there is a God. However, I don't believe that this answer is written exclusively for Christians, but it's true for all people. All men know that there is a God. And that's a controversial statement to make in today's society, society isn't it? Um, but I believe that. All men know that there is a God. The light of nature in man plainly declares that there is a God. Now, very often, I will get caught up on how something is phrased, on the words that are used, um, why something is written a specific way. And in this section of Part A, it actually made me do that. Um, it made me ponder, what is meant here? Why is it written like this? And I asked myself, is there a light in man? Well, clearly, it, it insinuates this. So in what way? And upon reflection, I believe that there's two things that speak to the light in man that declare that there's a God. Genesis 1, 26, verses 27 tells us, Then God said, Let us make man in our image after our likeness. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. 
something that is intrinsic and unique to man's nature is that he is made to reflect and resemble God. Not in every way possible, but in a likeness that is mental, moral, social, and immaterial that makes us distinct from animals and from the rest of creation. We possess a likeness that is mental, meaning that we are rational beings with the ability to create a reflection of God's omniscience and his omnipotence. We are not omniscient beings um, with the ability to just create things out of nothing, but we can reason and we can create with our own hands what God has already created for us. We possess a likeness that is moral, meaning that we care about truth and we care about justice, a reflection of God's holiness and his just nature. We make laws. We debate uh, trying to arrive to truth and we seek repercussions for those that break the law. We possess a likeness that is social, meaning that we are made for fellowship, a reflection of God's triune nature. We make friends, we organize events, we attend churches, and often feel very lonely if we are by ourselves. And we possess a likeness that is immaterial, meaning that we were made with an immaterial soul that enables us to commune with our creator upon faith in Christ a reflection of God who is spirit. This is the light of nature and man that distinguishes and elevates us above the rest of creation. This makes man very unique. But the second thing that speaks to the light of nature and man that is that God's moral law is written upon his heart. And as I quoted last month, Romans 2:15, the apostle Paul explains that God has written his moral law on man's hearts and that their consciences bear witness to it. As sinful as man is, the light of God's law abides in all men. We can and do have a moral barometer in us that is dictated by the forever binding truth of God's morality. And although they may suppress that truth, they do not have, or sorry, they do have the light of God's law abiding in them, and it's only going to stand to accuse them in the end. This is the light of nature and man that declares that there is a God. But what about the second half of part A? The works of God that plainly declare that there's a God. If you would, think back with me about how God has revealed himself unto man. This is something we talked about last, last month. How he has revealed himself in general revelation, uh, which is the truth about God that can be known and discerned by looking at the world around us and within ourselves how man can gaze upon the majesty of creation and the beauty of nature, the intricacies of what necessitate life, and know that there is a God. That man has known of God's eternal power and his divine nature because it's been clearly perceived in the creation of the world and the things that he made, and that man is left with no excuse. Think about how God revealed himself through special revelation, which is the truth of God revealed through miraculous means. how God revealed himself to man through appearances and dreams and visions, the writing of his word and the person of Jesus Christ in history. Think of his works, works of good providence, how he rescued and provided for his people to flee their slavery in Egypt. Think of his works of judgment. Psalm 9:16 says, the Lord has made himself known. He has executed judgment the wicked are snared in their work of their own hands. Think of his works of mercy, 
how the Father sent his only begotten Son to his people to die an undeserving death and to pour out his wrath upon him for our sins so that we may have peace with him. Better yet, think of how God has organized all things that exist in creation to reflect his majesty in the reality of his being. And as I said last month, how apart from God, you cannot make sense of meaning or purpose or logic or reason or truth or morality. But even consider how our planet is so perfectly fine-tuned and positioned in our solar system to necessitate and sustain life. If our planet were to move one position closer to the sun's gravitational pull, we burn and we die. If our planet were to move one position further, we would freeze to death. Think of how the atmosphere of the earth shields us from the vacuum of space. It shields us from deadly amounts of ultraviolet uh, radiation that is emitted by the sun, or just how the earth is perfectly hung on its axis, that if it shifted even a single degree, it would be uninhabitable. We're expected to believe that all these necessary things are the product of a random force of chance. Absolutely not. We can see plainly the works of God that testify to his being. All men know that there is a God. And true atheism is a myth. But how can I make such a controversial statement from what we see in this answer? The light of nature and man because of God who has made man in his image and in his likeness, who has written his law on the hearts of men. And the works of God, of general and special revelation, works of good providence and judgment, of mercy, and the organization of all things in creation that testify to the reality of his being. Man has knowledge of all of these things, but he will not believe by faith and repent. But why? Because general revelation reveals enough truth about God to condemn him, but it does not provide enough truth to bring him to a saving faith. And because special revelation, as informative about God and miraculous as it is, cannot change the hearts of the hostile and spiritually dead sinner. Man may read the scriptures and listen to the most clear and the most compelling gospel-centered evangelism to ever be heard, but he will not believe and repent of his own will. He may even acknowledge the absolute absurdity of life apart from God, but he will not believe in a saving way. He may, he may even affirm that the Bible is true, that the God of the Bible is the one and only God, but he has not repented and he has not believed upon Christ because they do not want to change their lifestyles and their actions, their hobbies or their friend groups. And I've met this person in real life. Even more scary are those that claim the name of Christ, performing many external Christian behaviors. They say the right things, yet they're still spiritually dead. They're unchanged and unconverted. And maybe this is somebody who, who may be pursuing religion for a sense of community or for a foundation of moral living or sensationalism or experience, but they're not truly seeking Christ for, the, for salvation and are no true friend of Jesus. And if that sounds hard to believe, think of Judas Iscariot, who is a textbook example of this kind of person. Judas, one of the 12 disciples, who personally was taught by Jesus, witnessed him perform miracles, and lived with his Lord. 
He was the one who betrayed him with a kiss so that the Sanhedrin would be able to identify him and arrest him to be crucified. But why? How does this happen? With all of the information that we see, with everything that appeals to us in our being, this happens because man from his birth is in bondage to sin. He is totally depraved, and he is totally unable of believing by faith on Christ from his own will. Ephesians 2, 1 through 3. It says, And you were dead in your trespasses and sins, in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, and the spirit that is now at work, and the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. Romans 3 also affirms this. Verses 10 through 12, they read, None is righteous, no, not one. No one understands, no one seeks for God, and all have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. Man knows that God exists, but, he's, but he, he is absolutely uh, refusing to repent and to believe. And it is this truth that actually leads us to part B of our answer. But his word and his spirit only do it fully and effectually for the salvation of sinners. And up until this point, we have seen that all of mankind knows that God exists. Scripture and the catechism have been incredibly clear in communicating that God has been plainly declared to man since creation. This is why they have no excuse but what we've stumbled upon is the problem that is rooted deep in the human condition, the total inability of man to seek, love, or believe upon Christ in a saving way. How every faculty of man has been corrupted by the sin of Adam and that man is in bondage to his sin. And part B of our answer is a very brief way of explaining to us how any man comes to saving faith in Christ. Which is why I said that ultimately I think this question is pointing us towards soteriology and salvation. But something I want you to take note of here is the use of the word effectually. The word effectually is important. It's a word that has a theological implication that is, I think, meant to draw us to think about the effectual calling of God. And to remind us of what this special calling is, then to give us clarity, we're going to take a moment to just contrast what is the general calling of God to the effectual calling of God. The general calling of God is the indiscriminate gospel call to believe and to repent on Christ, and it goes out to all men. It's the call that all men everywhere will hear when they hear the gospel preached or encounter the evangelistic outreach of a Christian. But because of their totally depraved and sinful nature, they cannot and they will not repent and believe. However, the effectual calling is a spiritual calling where the Father draws his elect to the Son through the power of the Holy Spirit. This effectual calling leads to the regeneration of the spiritually dead, changing their totally depraved hearts and their will to desire and to seek and to believe upon Christ. And this is a sovereign work of God that is instantaneous. This is what is known as the new birth. And this work is monergistic. 
meaning that it is solely performed by God and his grace, which leads to the conversion, justification, and the adoption of the sinner into God's heavenly family. Now, I'm sure that many of us can look back and remember the moment when we finally, for the first time, understood the gospel. That moment when things clicked and the fire in your spirit was lit. And now some of you may already know this, um, but to give you a little bit of background on myself, um, I was someone who grew up in a family where my grandfather and my father were both pastors. I attended church uh, every Sunday. I went to every Sunday school there was, and I went to nearly every single church event that my father's church ever had. I spent hours before church and after helping my father clean. I was hanging decorations, changing pyramids, uh, putting letters on the church sign, cutting the grass, organizing the church library, and so on. I spent so much of my time in my father's church that it essentially became a second home. And I spent so much time with my father as he carried out his pastoral duties. I watched him study, and I watched him write his sermons. I heard him recite them in his office and at home, um, and I heard him preach every single Sunday. I went with him when he would go and he would see people in the hospital, when he would preach at retirement centers. I watched him perform weddings and funerals. I went to uh, his denomination's camp meeting every single summer with him. I traveled with him when he had meetings with uh, denominational leaders. Uh, I went to church camps and I watched him kneel down at the bedside every morning that he woke up and every night when he went to bed. I saw the ins and outs of ministry throughout my entire childhood and had more resources and knew more pastors than any child probably ever has. That could be a little bit of a, of a reach, but I knew a lot. But by the, by the time I was in eighth grade, I realized that I actually didn't believe any of this. By the time I was a, a freshman in high school, I boldly proclaimed that I was an atheist, even though my father was a pastor. And looking back now, I understand that in all reality, I knew that God existed. I just hated him. And I would say that this is actually the case for most, of, for most men that claim atheism. After all, how do you hate something that doesn't exist, right? I had a burning anger for almost anyone who was an outspoken Christian at school. And I kind of made it my mission to try and make them look stupid and to mock them in front of our peers. Now, why am I telling you all of this? Because of my own life, my own life reflects the truth of our answer in this third question. When you think about it and you contemplate it, and as I read this, it was a very brief summary of, of how I came to faith. And something that, that appealed to me is thinking that deep down in my conscience, I knew that God existed, but that I just hated him. I had a heart that was hostile to God. I hated the idea of God. I hated Christianity, and I hated Christians. But to fast forward a couple years, I had a best friend in high school that invited me to come to church with him. Uh, at that time, I had no driver's license because it was suspended for having too many speeding tickets. And we were supposed to hang out later that night, uh, but he did not want to pick me up. And um, actually, we had plans in this town, but he had to drive out there. He'd have to come back and pick me up and go back to this same exact town. Um, so he invited me to go to church with him. And of course, I told him absolutely not. But I wanted to hang out with him, and he actually bribed me uh, by offering me Chipotle. He said he would buy me Chipotle after youth group, and funny enough, I went. Now, I sat through this youth pastor's small message. I was absolutely, absolutely annoyed. Uh, 
Um, and after the youth group was over, the youth pastor, who is now one of my best friends and the first man to really disciple me in the faith, um, he asked me why I was an atheist. I was almost excited to just tell him off. And I mean, as a sophomore in high school, I think I really let him have it. Um, I told him that religion is for cowards who make up a fake man in the sky to make themselves feel better about what happens when you die, that all Christians are hypocrites, that I wasn't scared of going to hell, and that they were idiots for believing in such a thing. And he let me have my moment, but he told me that he was sorry that I felt that way and that I was still welcome to come with Mitchell if I wanted to. But I had no plans of ever coming back again until I noticed a beautiful, blonde-haired, and green-eyed girl named Maria. And by the grace of God, that beautiful woman uh, became my wife. But I kid you not, I continued to go to church with Mitchell every single week, not because I was seeking God and not because I was questioning if Christianity was true, but only because I wanted to get to know that beautiful blonde at Mitchell's church. And I attended for quite a while. I listened to a lot of sermons. I listened to a lot of prayers. I attended uh, a ton of youth events, all while hearing the gospel preached. I wasn't becoming warm to the idea of God. I was still mentally arguing against everything that they were saying. But there was one specific youth event where a local worship band named uh, Marty Ford, they came and they played a concert at this church. And as everyone else around me is singing in worship, some of, some of them had their hands up um, and their eyes closed. I stood there with both of my hands in my pockets and not singing a single word. But there was this moment when I was staring at the lyrics on this screen that spoke about Jesus Christ who came and died in my place removing the weight of my sins, which is actually a truth that I had been told my entire life. And it was in that moment, like a light switch, I finally understood what those words meant. I caught myself not only understanding what Jesus did for me in a way that I never understood before, but I read those words and I wanted what they said. And it just absolutely broke me. I stood there in the middle of this worship conference uh, this worship concert, with all these people singing around me, and I was in absolute tears. I wanted that. And it was in that moment, at an Armenian Baptist church in Heath, Ohio, that I believed for the first time in my entire life. That was the new birth. That was the effectual calling, the spiritual call of God to me, where the Father drew me to the Son, by the work of the Holy Spirit, and he changed my wicked and hostile heart when I wanted nothing to do with him. The Holy Spirit gave me ears to hear and eyes to see, a will that was free from the bondage of my sin, who gave me understanding of the saving truth found in God's word and the ability to want Christ. And that was 10 years ago. Now our answer tonight, our answer to tonight's question is the general story of how I came to faith. I had every reason to know that there is a God, but deep down, I did know that, but I hated him. And it is God, the Holy Spirit, who must work on the hearts of dead men in order for them to believe the truth about God that we find in his word and to make them repent. This is a sovereign work of God. It's the only means by which man is saved. 
And this is the point that our answer is actually communicating to us. Man can encounter the saving truths of God written in his word. But in his natural state, man does not have the ability to seek and to believe these, those truths, which shows that it's absolutely necessary that the Holy Spirit's work on the hearts of the spiritually dead is absolutely necessary. I think I repeated that twice because I lost my spot. But you get my point, okay? The, Holy Spirit, the work of the Holy Spirit is absolutely necessary in order to bring dead men to life. This is the light of nature in man and the works of God that plainly declare that there is a God. This stands to condemn them, but it cannot save them. Scripture contains all that is needed for saving faith, but natural man does not have the ability to do it. Romans 8, verses 5 through 8. They tell us, For those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh, but those who live according to the Spirit set their minds on the things of the Spirit. For to set the mind on the flesh is death, but to set the mind on the spirit is life and peace. For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God, for it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. Those who are on the flesh cannot please God. And this is all to say that until God calls on his elect with an efficacious and sovereign grace to change their hearts, the unbelieving can and will not believe. It is the work of the Holy Spirit accompanied by the word of God only that produces full and effectual salvation. Now, if I could leave you guys with two things to take away from this question. I didn't time this one, but it feels pretty short. Um, but it seems very clear. But as I read through this, two things that I, that I wish I could have people think about when we leave. The first one would be, to never forget about the unmerited grace that God has shown you. We have all different stories of how God drew us to him. In fact, apart from the unmerited grace of God and salvation, most of us in this room wouldn't even know each other. But it's kind of a beautiful thing. I want you to think about your conversion, who you used to be and who you are now, how long ago that was, how much you've grown, and how gracious and kind God has been to you. Think of the fact that before the foundation of the world, God chose you to be an adopted son or daughter. Think of Romans 5, 6. For while we were still weak, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. Be reminded of the fact that we were once lost, but are now found. And the second thing that I want us to take away from this is our calling to preach the gospel. And I know that I hit this a lot. But please hear me, God has commanded us to be evangelistic. Romans 10 explains to us, How then will they call on him in whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in him whom they have never heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? And how are they to preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. So faith comes from hearing and hearing through the word of Christ. We do not know whom God has chosen to save, and it's not for us to know. What we are to know is to preach the gospel and to deliver that general call, the call on all men to believe by faith in Christ and repent of their sins. Because salvation is a sovereign work of God, 
And it is God who will, who will effectually call all of his elect in due time. We must not ignore this duty. For almost all of us here are the result of a faithful Christian or even many Christians who did not ignore that duty. And it was opening the door for God's effectual call to us. Think of those and reflect on those. Let's go ahead and pray. Dear Heavenly Father, I thank you for this church and every person that is in it. We thank you for bestowing your sovereign grace upon us and saving us while we were still sinners and we were hostile to you. We thank you for sending your son to accomplish the work of salvation for your people. And I ask that you would stir our affections and renew our gratitude in our hearts from what we read and from what was preached tonight. We pray that you would be glorified. And we ask all these things as your adopted sons and daughters in the blood of Jesus Christ and the work of the Holy Spirit in us. Amen.